Hello and welcome to the Holy Hour Podcast. It's the bi-weekly all-cure podcast. I'm Gavin and we have a wonderful episode for you guys this evening. Hope you're doing good out there and everybody was successful yesterday in scoring their record store day exclusive of show on vinyl. Finally, and uh, hopefully all the record store day madness wasn't too hectic and you were able to pull it off if that was your mission. And on top of that, hope everybody had a wonderful Friday celebrating Robert Smith's birthday. I know we had a great celebration here at the house. Henson and I even did our annual Instagram live stream, but somehow it didn't save. Like I posted it and it was fine. It was all on there. And then I went back to look at it and it was gone. So I don't know. I'm taking some measures to try to retrieve it. So if it pops back up, awesome. But otherwise, we'll just have to live in the moment. Thanks to the few that I saw that were in there at the time and caught it. I saw Andy and Arusha, Coulter for a second maybe. Matt Ford was helping out with some questions and Jessica. So yeah, we had a blast and Henson had real fun and wanted to do it again. So that's all that matters. But speaking of uh, Robert's birthday, our friend Kate over at CureThreads.com has been working hard for you guys and put together a whole new project to honor Robert Smith on his 64th birthday and unveiled it last Friday. Here's the official statement from Kate. To celebrate the 64th birthday of the Cure's frontman Robert Smith, a collective of visual artists and designers from all over the world have ventured into creating portraits that represent the singer of the famous British band in various periods of his life. The initiative, conceived by American illustrator and art director Kate Garchinsky, has brought together many artists of various nationalities united by the love for the music of The Cure and for art to create together original works that manage to encapsulate the elusive and histrionic soul of Robert Smith. Participants followed detailed instructions on how to make portraits digitally or with traditional artistic techniques starting from templates created specifically for the creation of a reel or a short video showing all the works that have been created for this event. And so today, or last Friday, April 21st, 2023, the video will be online and visible to anyone who wants to see the dedication and artistic skills of these fans, or rather, artists. You can find all these wonderful portraits at the Instagram handle at CureArtsCollab or through Kate's page at ForgetAboutStars and on CureThreads.com. Super big thanks to Kate for putting all this together. It's really cool. I highly recommend you go check it out. And of course, it just turns out that Kate is also a dedicated Patreon member of this podcast. So I recommend you go over to CureThreads.com not only to see this reel, but also check out her wonderful products for sale that have featured much Cure-inspired artwork. So go on over CureThreads.com. And let's shout out the rest of our Patreon while we're kicking off this episode. We haven't put these guys in the front in a while. So let's say a giant thank you to Scott Kruger as well. He's part of the Sarlacc Digest. That's an all-Star Wars podcast. You can catch their live shows every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Pacific time on YouTube. Or catch the replays everywhere you listen to podcasts. Each week they're bringing you quality line talk and theory crafting been a blast watching the mandalorians latest season with these guys they spot out all the cool little details and references that you probably most likely missed 
I'm pretty good with my nerd detector stuff, but these guys leave no stone unturned and really make it fun watching and re-watching and hearing what they predict is just around the corner in Star Wars. So come on over. No matter what level fan Star Wars you are, you'll love the show. Dana is an extremely talented motion designer and animator. Please check out her work at Graphics. Dot TV. That's graphics with an X dot TV. There you can see her motion graphics reel and get a sampling of some of her amazing work. You can also reach out to her if you are in need of an animator or motion designer for your project or business. Go to graphics.tv. And then we got Lisa. Take her advice that Dickens is the coolest club in Calgary, Canada. Go to DickensYYC.com where you can find all the upcoming events and shows. And um, they usually have all kinds of cool nights, a cool trivia night and a themed dance nights coming up. So go check it out or follow them on Twitch at Dickens YYC for all live streaming action. And of course, our buddy Chaz and loyal co-host of the show has 17secondshirts.com where you can check out his cure related designs follow him on 17 underscore seconds on instagram and uh when he puts the latest pre-order up you can jump on it over at 17 secondshirts.bigcartel.com and make yourself look real good for this upcoming tour and we have a new patreon member yes at the promotion level tier we welcome tim to the show welcome tim tim is in texas Texas Tim, howdy, and welcome for you. Your mix CD should be arriving any day now, and um, stickers as well. Tim is part of a hotel group called New Waterloo, actually, and they own and operate uh, hotels, the South Congress Hotel in Austin, Texas, and the Waymore's Guest House in Nashville, Tennessee, along with uh, the Albert that is in Fredericksburg, Texas, that's slated to open in August. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. If you're in any of those spots and looking for a relaxing, awesome place to stay, check out one of Tim's spots. So welcome, Tim. And a huge shout-out, of course, to Francisco and John Roberts out in Australia and Tom Burns, who was just on the last episode, Letty and Tom Johnson, Matt Ford, Coulter, Danny, Matt, Nomicio, Dione, Alan, Allison, John, Ben, Sue, Jeff Cortland Jones, Jeff Hilton, Craig, and of course Donna. All lovely people and members of the Patreon. So go on over to patreon.com slash the holy hour podcast and see if you want to get in on the action. Whew. All right. We got a lot to cover tonight, too. So hopefully you guys are buckled in and getting comfortable. Because tonight, we are stoking the fire on hype for the upcoming Cure Tour. I thought it'd be a fun way to continue our countdown to the North American leg of Shows of the Lost World Tour by taking a look back at all the past Cure Tours. Yes, all of them. Uh, This was actually an idea originally proposed by listener Jason Hall. Hello, Jason. And um, I love the idea from the start, looking back at all of the tours, but it's a bit daunting. And when I realized that it's like, you know, 45 years worth of tours, 
How on earth are we going to cover all that? I still don't know. So hopefully this won't be an eight hour long episode. But we're going to take a look back at all of them and uh, let's see if we can cover it. It seems like the right time, right? If we're not going to do it now, when are we going to do it? So let's let's dive in. You know, I initially wanted to take like a quick 101 kind of look at the past tours. Mostly the batches of multi-date tours, uh, many of which have a clever name attached to it. Um, some a not-so-clever name. There are probably going to be lots of holes in this, too, so spare me of the criticisms if I don't mention some one-off show that you attended back in 1997. Um, but I'm going to try to cover everything that we can scoop up on them. There's a lot in this. Approximately 1,601 shows or events or appearances, anyway, uh, to date. And that's according to setlist.fm. Um, who we know is far from 100% accurate, but is pretty damn thorough. So we'll be using that one a lot. And while I'm citing sources, in addition to setlist.fm and slowly going through each page of uh, Cure shows from the past 45 years or so, I also really utilized Christian Gerard's book, FAQ. Um, it's a wonderful book. I, we've talked about it in the past and had him on the show, so I strongly recommend you go check it out if it isn't on your bookshelf. But he has a couple uh, in segments, really well-written sections there where he breaks down all the past tours. So um, that was a huge help. So thank you, Christian, in advance. Let's go ahead and dive in then. So what is it about The Cure Live that makes these tours so special and has really solidified them as one of the greatest live bands of all time, which might sound absurd on the surface, especially to a non-Cure fan, but I think everyone, even if you're not a huge Cure fan, has to admit at this point that they are one of the great live bands still going and ever out there. And, and I don't even, as a diehard fan, know what it is exactly about them live that makes it so good. You know, usually you need some kind of drastically different shift from the recordings to what you're doing on stage. You're like, oh yeah, they, you know, the albums are a little boring, but they kill it live. Can't say that about either of those. One, their albums aren't boring, but two, the live show isn't really that much different in the in the first glance of things. They don't like improvise or jam the songs out or anything like a fish show or some shit where people that would love going to see them live. They don't drastically change the songs up much, you know, like where you say, oh, yeah, that version is so much better. It's usually pretty much the same structure and everything. The shows and set production even hasn't been drastically exceptional until recent years, really. When you think back or see those old bootlegs of like the prayer tour or kissing tour or something, there's nothing really too elaborate with their big stage show. Um, yet there's something that's undeniably captivating about them. Even as a kid, when we watched In Orange, um, you know, there wasn't that much going on, but I was just locked in without even knowing those songs. And uh, just something about Robert's presence and the whole band and the way they just present the songs, it really just hooks you. Somehow, the raw emotion, I think, just comes through, maybe even better live than on the recordings. And that's a huge part of Cure songs, of course, right? So so maybe it is just that he's sincerely giving 100% in those performances. We as fans all know that he is known for, you know, really pouring his heart out into every single show on the tour. But you really do see that in those live videos and hear it on the live recordings and can pick up on it when you're just got your nosebleed seats in the, in the back of the arena even. 
and it uh, makes it an exceptional live performance. As I said, there's a lot of years to cover here, so let's go ahead and look at the specifics and uh, hop in this Cure Time Machine that we're always talking about and take it back to the official start. Uh, they've been playing around in various forms for you know a couple years before this, but let's go ahead and start in 1978 at the official first Cure gig, which takes place. Most people cite it as the May 18th show, 1978 at the Rocket, um, where they are officially the Cure. Uh, at this point, Pearl has left the band. They have dropped the easy from their name, and we're ready to rock. And uh, as as far as tours go, um, it wouldn't officially kick in. Let's say after they sign officially to Fiction. So the first, you know, play a string of dates, opening for Wire, which would be significant and cool. And they play seven dates, opening for Generation X, even. But we're kicked off of this tour, apparently. Uh, hard to say how soon in, but I'm still assuming that there was more to it than what, you know, just lol pissing on Billy Idol's boot. But maybe that's all it took. And uh, so they're off of that tour, I'm assuming, before too long. And continued on with a buttload of dates just around England. Almost nightly, though, when you looked at the dates, that was crazy how many they're cramming in in these early years. Um, and they would wrap up at the Marquee Club on December 26 in 1978, shortly after the release of their debut single, Killing an Arab, which had just come out on the 22nd. So their first official year, 78, plowed through. Lots of opening gigs in there. Let's get into more specifics. 1979, there would be 135 shows that year. When I say the years for the whole shows, it's going to count appearances and stuff. We don't really have too many appearances in the early years, but once we start getting into, like when they play on late night shows or different Top of the Pops variations, uh, setlist.fm has a lot of those cited in there. So they're counting those as shows too. So I'll say shows slash appearances a lot. But uh, 135 in 1979. So they come out swinging early in their career for sure. That is a ton of shows. May 19th, uh, the Three Imaginary Boys Tour would officially kick off to support their debut album, which had just come out a week earlier. And they're mostly playing songs from that album on this tour. Some B-side and some of the singles that weren't on there. Um, and some even the, the, the Hansa era rejects still sprinkled in in the early shows. Oddly, they would open and close a lot of the shows, if not pretty much all of them, with 1015, uh, which is a kind of a weird move at that point in your career. Um, maybe they were, you know, I think we all did that in our real young bands where you assume that people that are at the show early on aren't going to stick around to the end. So you play your good song early if not first and also people are arriving late so they didn't catch the first song so you could also just play it then a little odd that 1015 would be the one that they're banking on but i guess that that is the one that that landed them on fiction technically so uh yeah holds a lot of weight that tune um in july they would play their first gig outside of the uk in the netherlands which is a bit surprised going over these set lists, how many times they will revisit the Netherlands over the upcoming years. 
And, of course, they'd wrap up the Three Imaginary Boys Tour with their first Reading Festival slot in August. And then, from there, they would join the Join Hands Tour almost immediately after finishing the Three Imaginary Boys Tour. And that would um, be a support act for Susie and the Banshees on their Join Hands album tour. Uh, This is the the infamous tour, or famous tour maybe uh where the banshees guitarist john mckay and drummer kenny morris had just quit only a couple days into the tour so in order to keep it rolling uh robert offers up his services to play in both bands um play guitar for Susie and do the cures the opening act still um so for this is about 20 plus shows on this run of dates and it went from August to October in 79. This is also the tour that would mark the last time that The Cure was ever an opening act for anyone consistently on like a consistent date tour. Of course, they would play like festivals and smaller group things where they weren't the headliner uh, for a few more years. But yeah, it's just crazy to think this is the last time they were ever a support act. And uh, they're real anti that from the start, I guess. But yeah, crazy that it wouldn't happen again. Abandoning it after the first year, pretty pretty nice. Must be must be nice to be the cure. <laughs> so that tour wrapped up. Robert could go back to just being the cure. He'll revisit his time with the Banshees a few years on. I feel like a lot of times people still mix this up with his full stint in Susan the Banshees, but this is the first little taste of it. Uh, during this tour they'd still cram in another tour in 1979 before it was all over one month later after that tour ended they would kick off at the legendary eric's in liverpool uh, for one more mini little tour wrapping around this time um headlining of course and would have fellow fiction label mates the associates and passions open up for them And believe it or not, during all these dates, somehow the whole side story is going down with Robert uh, hanging out with Simon Moore and doing the cult hero single and inevitably starting to write 17 second songs and Michael Dempsey starting to fade out of the picture. You know, this whole story of him not liking the new demos. So he takes them to Simon. Simon does like the demos. Simon takes his place. So during this little mini tour, the Future Pastimes Tour, um, these would be the first dates where Simon is playing uh, in The Cure, late 79, and uh, bringing along keyboardist Matthew Hartley, quickly ushering in the pre-17 seconds era. Then it comes to 1980. In 1980, we'll see 133 shows or appearances by The Cure. This still remains a career high. They were cranking it out like mad this year. All kinds of performances all around the world. They would kick off the the year with a new album, 17 Seconds, that would also hold a lot of first for the band. Um, They would call their first tour the Cult Heroes Tour. These dates would start before the release of the album in March. And uh, by March 28th, A Forest comes out and is their first top 40 entry, coming in at 31. 
Um, they come to the U.S. for the first time in April. April 10th, to be exact, is their first show in the U.S. at the Emerald City in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Chaz and I were going to go try to find this venue when I went up there for the Rock Hall show. Uh, but it, it's not there anymore. That's what I'm telling you, kid. It, it's not there anymore. They blew it up. Now, I don't know if they did that or not, but I think Chaz said something like it's a, a car dealership or a parking lot now or something. But um, So they would play about seven shows here in the U.S. Uh, in the Northeast. New Jersey, D.C., Philly, um, three in New York, and Boston. Awesome footage of these has surfaced in, I guess cure kind of recent years um on youtube so you could go check those out if you've somehow missed them and gone down that rabbit hole definitely stop this podcast right now and go to youtube just type in cure 1980 new york or boston and uh you'll see some cool footage from this tour seventeen seconds the album comes out april 18th while they are here in the u.s they get four days off back in London before playing another handful of dates. This one's called the 17 Seconds Tour, appropriately, um, and officially kicks off on April 25th. And uh, sets are, are a good mix of 17 Seconds and the Boys Don't Cry version of Three Imaginary Boys, mixing in those singles and such. So, good Good sets, venturing outside of the UK for these shows, into Belgium, France, Netherlands, Germany, and back around again, wrapping up in London July 18th. We'll start seeing this pattern more and more where they uh, venture out into Europe and loop themselves back around for a finale in London. And they get a dose of the Cure tour continues on. No rest for these kids. This tour takes them to Chris Perry's native land of New Zealand a mere 10 days after the last tour. Um, nine dates in New Zealand. Then they're off to Australia for the first time. And this is their mega Australia tour where they played around 24 shows in Sydney, Brisbane, and on Melbourne, and Gold Coast, Perth, Adelaide, everywhere. It seems like that you could play. They played it in Australia on that tour. Uh, this tour would finish off matthew as a member of the cure he was not having it by the end of that tour and so long matthew but not the end of touring in 1980 still 1980 tour that's actually the name of it the 1980 tour like i said some of them are more clever than others um this one finally they get a month off after australia and the band resumes touring in october and uh these shows go to sweden belgium Germany, Netherlands, and France. So kind of their second round of that in uh, 1980. And this tour would also see the pre-recording debuts of Holy Hour, Primary, and I'm Cold. So they're starting to stretch in and add in new songs on this tour. And then the next tour, even, Small Batch of Dates, is actually called the Primary Tour. Somewhere around November, the tour merged into the primary tour and continues around again through december with more uk dates and they're adding in all cats are gray at this point when they wrap up on december 18th in london Whew, what a year 1981 they scale it down from 133 performances to 127 so another 
like you know and then it was a hundred something for three imaginary boys right off the side so we're going on year three of a hundred plus shows do you see what's gonna happen do you see <laughs> a handful of dates kick off the new year 1981 along with the recording of the album faith which gets released on april 14th April 18th, the Pitcher Tour starts, and uh, this is going to be about a four-month-long batch of tunes that are, uh, you know, naturally, by injecting songs from Faith into the set, are going to take a darker turn. This tour would technically be very gruesome for the band. It would kick off with Robert's grandmother dying shortly beforehand, Lowell's mom passing away in June while they're in the Netherlands, only about three months into this tour. And it would be about as heavy as any rational person would assume it would be. Um, And the obvious precursor to the inevitable meltdown that's on the horizon. But they would forge on, sprinkling in songs like Other Voices, Funeral Party, Drowning Man. They don't lighten the mood. For pretty much the full month of June, they play Netherlands. Uh, for a second part of this tour called the Circus Tour. This is the one where they brought along a circus tent and apparently had tons of technical difficulties. But I think all of us would give a kidney to see whatever kind of madness ensued at these shows. So, um, yeah, that was all in the Netherlands. I wasn't quite sure when they were doing that, but, uh, yeah, just a string of dates for the month of June in the Netherlands, a circus tour. Anybody out there make it to that? Pretty rad. I remember seeing some photos floating around that somebody just posted personal photos, which is always pretty cool to see. After about a two-week break, they do take to the tour to the U.S. now. Two nights in New York this time, and then they hit the West Coast for the first time. Sunny California to play the Faith <laughs> songs. Um, so yeah, out in Cali, they play four song or four shows. And then three days later, we're back in New Zealand for six dates and 11 more Australian dates. So immediately coming back to Australia almost the next year and playing 11 dates this time. Oh, wait, they haven't played Canada yet. Let's do that right now, too. So after four days off after Australia, they uh, go to Vancouver for the first time and play five dates up there. The boys do get a week off after Canada in September, so that's good. They get to rest up for a minute. Then it's back to France for pretty much the entire month of October playing around France. Whew. Let's cram one more batch of tours in. What do you say? We still got time. Eight appearances tour. This would round out the year 1981. Literally eight shows in the UK. Figurehead would make its debut in Sheffield on the 25th of November. They opened all these shows with The Drowning Man, by the way. So if that isn't a cry for help, I don't know what it is. Uh, can you imagine Drowning Man as the opening to, to a set? It's pretty rad now, but yeah, that, that's heavy. So that rounds out 1981, taking us into 1982. <laughs> Only 45 shows somehow. I wonder what happens here. They dropped drastically in 1982. The 14 Explicit Moments Tour. The year begins with the recording of pornography 
And as debaucherous as it sounded, the band did seem business as usual, really. Maybe a bit more drugged out and constantly on the verge of going full dark side, but they still play a handful of warm-up gigs around UK. And then the 14 Explosive Moments tour um, through April until the album's release in May. Um, and then it becomes the Pornography Tour once the album officially comes out. So May 5th begins the Pornography Tour in Netherlands. This is the one that doesn't go so well. While still surprisingly representative of all their albums to date, the set list are now pretty void of tracks like Boys Don't Cry or Grinding Halt or Jumping Someone Else's Train. Uh, Charlotte Sometimes, Play For Today are still in there, so that's about as poppy as you're getting on this tour. Lots of stuff from Faith, and of course, very pornography-heavy. Surprisingly, despite the super high tensions in the band that are building, with them and the crew, they do make it till May, May 27th, before it all comes to a head. After their show in Strasbourg, France, where Robert and Simon have their infamous fist fight, presumably over a mix-up over the bar tab but pretty safe to say that it's just all the stress and bullshit and playing you know three years of 100 plus shows back to back that's gonna add up eventually it pops they would part ways immediately after the fight but of course robert's dad quickly convinced him he needed to finish the tour and as for the fans deserve to see the shows that they spent their hard-earned money on the tickets for. And uh, somehow they all agreed to meet back up and finish the tour. Three days later in Switzerland when they resume for ten more shows. How awkward <laughs> must that traveling be between them? But uh, ten dates, mostly through France, are played. And then the finale is June 11th in Brussels. The band plays their 16-song set and comes out for the encore. This time, Robert's on drums, Simon on guitar, Lowell, who knows what Lowell's doing. Roadie, Gary Biddles is singing. Robert's a wanker, Simon's a wanker, everybody, whatever. Uh, Robert throws the drumsticks. The cure is dead. And they are, for now. So, that wraps up the pornography tour with a record low of 45 shows and appearances in 1982. 1983 rolls around. Only 12 shows, but for a guy in a band that technically doesn't even exist, that's still pretty good, actually. So um, Robert doesn't take the time to really relax very much in 1983 that you would think he is, despite The Cure's troubles. He'll still end up recording... All the pop singles, recording with The Glove, with Severn, and also joining Susie and the Banshees, and starting the recording of Aina, and of course more fucking touring with Susie and the Banshees. So he's still packing a lot in to 1983, which is supposed to be his relaxation year. Far from it. The 1983 tour is what it was called, which finds him playing with Andy Anderson, Phil Thornalley, and Lowell. They'd play three shows in England, including the Elephant Fair, and then off to the U.S. in August to surprisingly promote The Walk, I'm assuming, and technically Let's Go to Bed too. Uh, but mostly they still just end up playing Dark Cure sets, really, when you look at the sets there. Um, 
I don't think Let's Go to Bed's even in any of the sets. So I think they throw the walk in there for like the encores. But for the most part, it's still very uh, pornography mixed in with the highlights from the first three albums. Um, they play two shows in New York and four in California again for this little mini tour. And that would wrap up 1983 as he sorts out his Susie and the Banshees issues, starts recording the top as well. And uh, we roll into 1984, 70 shows. This is called Shite Dog Shite. So 1984 finds Robert recording the top at the beginning of the year and also Hyena, um, ultimately choosing the cure, confirming his new lineup of Andy Anderson, Phil on bass, Lowell on keyboards now, and Porl joins the band. The Top Tour. So, not the most creative name either, but we'll call it The Top Tour, they say. Kicks off April 25th in Newcastle. These set lists would swap out a lot of the mega downer tunes from Faith and Pornography. So this is the first shift from that um, for tracks off of the top, usually. Um, holding steady, older staples like Three Imaginary Boys, Play for Today, of course. UK dates would merge into European dates on this tour about mid-May. Hitting up Belgium, France, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and of course the Netherlands again. Uh, and wrapping up on September 3rd. This time, they're a bit more chill and wait until um, the end of the month to visit New Zealand and Australia for 11 dates down there. First time uh, that I believe that they hit up Japan, too. So they hit up Japan for three dates in October. The last of these dates, which would pre- prove to be Andy's last shows as the drummer due to erratic behavior. The band was set to hit up North America next, though, um, for the most extensive U.S. dates to date. Um, Usually they just kind of do those scattered New York and California ones, but they wanted to do a proper U.S. tour at this point. However, they don't have a drummer, so they're going to have to think of something fast, and Phil comes to save the day. He knows a guy, Vince Eli from the Psychedelic Furs. He was able to help out but only for the first 11 dates or so. He had prior commitments with the Furs. So Phil once again pulls through after Vince has to depart and brings in a fellow named Boris Williams, a young bloke that had been working with the Thompson Twins. Boris was able to jump right in mid-tour here in the U.S. His first show with the band was in Minneapolis on November 7th. The set list is right on par with all the other previous nights on the 1984 tour. Further showing what a badass Boris Williams was right from the start. They would play eight more shows on this tour in the U.S. and Canada, wrapping up on December 17th at the Beacon Theater in New York City, 1985. All right, what, what? Something happens before then. They play 67 shows, so a little less than 84, actually, in 85. The Cure would begin to slow down their manic pace a bit in 85, taking the first part of the year to write new songs and make up with Simon Gallup and bring him back into the band and record their breakthrough album, The Head on the Door, beginning the golden era, 1985 tour is what they would call the dates before the album comes out, June and July, 
10 euro dates prior to the release of the album, including Spain, Italy, Finland, most notably. Then the Head Tour kicks off after the album's release on August 26th. This will be the official tour um, on September 8th. Uh, the band is rejuvenated and ready to kick some ass again. The album is already selling great, and the sets for Head on the Door are heavy with Head on the Door songs, mostly opening with baby screams, which is cool, and closing the main set with Sinking, which is extra cool, and starting to see longer sets at this point for mo- with multiple encores. September 8th through the 22nd mostly focuses on the UK. Then the band head back to North America to expand on what they did in 1984 by really digging in and uh, getting everyone over here in the US to start falling in love with this band even further. They start in Seattle this time on October 3rd and play 25 shows in the US and in Canada, even hitting up Ohio this time. Two dates at the Warner Theater in D.C., which is cool, and a finale at Radio City Music Hall in New York on November 1st. Later in the month, they would resume dates in Europe on the 19th, kicking it off in England, then heading on through Germany, France, Italy, and then even more France dates. So they would wrap up on December 18th in Paris this time. 1986 27 shows and appearances in 1986 and it would uh, seem like an unusual change of pace for the cure only those 27 shows and appearances total and they take a much needed breather and they also put out standing on a beach to ride the momentum of head on the door this collection of singles makes a huge impact for the band especially on the U.S. introducing many fans to The Cure for the first time, myself included. And in 86, the tour is called the 86 Tour. <laughs> Prior to Standing on a Beach's release in May, the band would play five shows as the 86 Tour, mostly festivals like Pink Pop and Glassenberry. And then the Beach Party Tour would be the official Standing on a Beach Tour and start in the U.S., at the Great Woods Center in Mansfield, Massachusetts on July 6th. And that would continue across this fine nation for the month of July, hitting up spots like Meriwether Post Pavilion for the first time, woo! Concluding at the Forum in Inglewood, California on July 27th. Uh, fairly quickly returning to Europe for shows in Spain and France again with a finale in Orange, which would, of course, be made into the classic film by Tim Pope, and eventually further solidifying my love for this band, like many of you, I'm sure. 1987, 76 shows and appearances this year, jumping right back into the fire. In hindsight, it's pretty obvious during the golden era of The Cure what's going to happen if you give them the year off. They're, they're going to make a new record, right? And they're going to make it a double album to make up for the for the year they lost. So the 87 tour is before the release of Kiss Me, Kiss Me. And takes the band to South America for the first time. Argentina and Brazilian shows that would rival Beatlemania, but be a lot more 
insane. If you want to revisit this section in Lowell's book, Cured, uh, I highly recommend it. It goes into great detail and description of the mayhem that happened at these shows. The venues were not prepared for any of this, it sounded like. In Argentina, tickets were oversold, violence broke out, barriers were collapsing, three police officers even died. No one was prepared for how huge the band had become down there, and the band wasn't even prepared. Um, it was pretty insane. By April, the band would resume with a handful of dates in England, though, and Italy, before officially launching the album and the Kissing Tour. July 9th in Vancouver, Canada is where it would kick off this time with Roger O'Donnell joining the band for the first time helping out on keyboards in that whole situation. <laughs> this show would also mark the live debut of a little song called Just Like Heaven and uh, most other soon-to-be classics from that album released only a month or so earlier. The set list were 90% Kiss Me material, though, uh, with only the obvious in-between days, walk, forest, close-to-me kind of songs thrown in. It was the first time that they really just, I mean, I guess Kiss Me so long that if they want to play these songs, it's going to take up 90% of the set. But they were really not touching back into any of the early, early Dark Era stuff during this tour. Looks like the last encore was still reliable for a few sprinkled in there, but uh, really would focus on the new material on this tour. And the tour would culminate in New York for their first Madison Square Garden show, actually. Just one this time. Followed by a night at the Ritz, though, on August 11th. And uh, after taking September off, the European leg would continue in late October. That would take them through Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, and all the usual spots through France, Germany, Netherlands, and Italy. Concluding finally in December with three nights at Wembley Arena. Sound familiar? So pretty much non-stop epic arena-sized shows at this point from April through December. Lots of touring. They would once again need some time to decompress and figure out what the hell they could do that would possibly top that as they head in to 1988. <gasps> what? The first year of no shows ever since the band had started. But don't worry, they weren't being lazy. Robert was getting married to Mary, and the band was writing a pretty good album. Disintegration, you ever heard of that one? Yeah, so that's what they're working on in 88. The prayer tour would begin, minus Lowell for the first time in the band's history, and would kick off uh, one day before the album's release on May 1st, and uh, start in Europe this time, actually. Denmark, to be exact. Then to Germany, Netherlands, Switzerland, Austria, Italy, France, Spain, back to France, then wrapping up in the UK, three nights at Wembley, at the end of July, which would later become the Entreat live albums that we all adore. The sets again were definitely disintegration heavy, but uh, more diverse this time than the Kissing Tour. Uh, we are like we're used to in modern times, sprinkling in the singles and deep cuts from all eras with some pretty dark sections that fit well with the disintegration vibe. So a few more faith and pornography tunes are coming back around and being dropped in 
Maybe Robert's starting to get a little stressed out again. Those Faith songs start popping up and popping back into the set list. You know something's up. The North American leg begins only a month after um, the first round and would start August with a mega show in Giant Stadium in New Jersey to over 45,000 fans. We are definitely at next level cure shit here. The Capitol Center, they would also play in Maryland, Spectrum in Philly. The tour would stretch across America and Canada. On September 6th, The Cure would also make their live U.S. TV debut on the MTV Video Awards, playing Just Like Heaven, wisely not choosing the song Disintegration or Same Deep Water as You. First impressions are everything here in America, right? So, good choice. Just like heaven. They would resume a few more dates in the U.S. The last show in Massachusetts on September 23rd. The band was exhausted and ready to call it quits entirely by the end of this tour. Robert even ended that show apparently by saying, Thanks, good night. I'll never see you again. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, The first of many close calls. But Roger does call it quits there. He is out of the cure for now after this tour. So 1990 rolls along. We get 12 shows slash appearances in 1990. Luckily, it didn't take too long for Robert to realize he was full of shit and wanted to keep playing live. He would resume with a few festivals this year, even if they didn't have any new material uh, just mixed up on the horizon um, or a clear future, really. These shows were called the Pleasure Trips Tour. Mostly festivals, a great way to break in new keyboardist Perry Bamonte. And uh, they would headline Glastonbury in June 23rd to 72,000 people. And the festival was ill-equipped, of course. That was the one where the band had to stop to let a helicopter evacuate a fan who nearly died in the chaos. They tried to calm everyone down by playing Same Deep Water as You. This time, it was a wise choice. And uh, Robert vowed to never play Glastonbury again. Uh, the Pleasure Trips tour would continue with a few more scattered Euro dates and max out with only 12 that year. 1991 was actually another pretty slow year for the band, with the momentum slowly gathering in the background. They would only play three to five shows, depending on what you want to count as a full show. Um, yeah, this would be even more chill, and... Um, couple of those were TV appearances. One of the shows is the secret TNC gig at the crazy small venue in London. And another epic show for the great British weekend at Wembley Arena. And of course, MTV Unplugged would also be recorded in 91. All this has been documented on the Playout VHS which has been remastered, actually, and is currently on YouTube. So, yeah, if you haven't seen that, also stop this podcast right now. Please go watch it and do yourself a favor. And uh, the rest of the year would be devoted to recording the classic album, Wish. Coming off the heels of the Prayer Tour and Disintegration, 1992 
would prove to be the peak commercial success for The Cure as they come out blazing and tour. They'll end up playing 111 shows and appearances this year. This is the first time breaking 100 again since Faith in 81. And of course, it'll almost kill the band again. <laughs> but that's a minor detail. The Wish Tour kicks things off with a warm-up dates through the UK starting on the 21st of April. Wish's release date and also Robert Smith's 33rd birthday. And then that would all start in Bradford, England. Ten more shows would follow before setting sail across the Atlantic back to the U.S. fucking A. All right. May 14th. Providence, Rhode Island is where it all starts for the Wish Tour. Uh, covering all the spots and stadiums and arenas, any goddamn place. It seems like they played it all in this tour, doubling up even some of the cities. No one was left out. My first ever Cure show on May 25th at the Capitol Center, Landover, Maryland, which is just outside of D.C. 15-year-old me would never be the same after that show. Most of the set list would resemble what they played on the show, live show, or the video. Um, if they did two nights in a city, they would swap out some of the rarer tunes that would appear in Paris. Stuff like Figurehead and In Your House, Letter to Elise. Every real combo of the set list was pretty damn impressive, though. That you would have all those amazing songs from Wish sprinkled over classic fan favorites and deep cuts. So, uh, speaking of show, the concert film would be filmed on July 18th and 19th in Auburn Hills, Michigan. And the North American leg would wrap up on July 23rd at the Nassau Memorial Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. A couple of weeks off, then the band heads down under for two shows in New Zealand, eight shows in Australia. Then it's back to Europe by September 21st as they forge through the familiar countries of Scandinavia and Germany, Switzerland, France, Italy, Spain, back to France again, and land at home in England on November 18th, playing through December 3rd, where they oddly wrap up by playing in Dublin, Ireland, not Wembley Arena this time. With record sales soaring and the band selling out most of, if not all, these shows, the other notable detail, sadly, was the health concerns that merged on this tour as the band gradually started to fall apart from all this, of course. Robert, you know, had his sort of meltdown prior to the top tour as he left Susie and the Banshees. Lowell was pretty much at the peak of his battles during the Kiss Me era into the recording of Disintegration. And now, unfortunately, it seems like it's Simon's turn. He'd, he'd have a rough time touring, and uh, but would tough it out through all those dates, all the way through North America, Australia, and Euro. But he would play a show on Halloween, October 31st in Italy, and have a severe vitamin deficiency. He got a vitamin C shot before the show, but was in a horrible mood, apparently, and had to fly home the next day and go to the hospital. He was diagnosed with pleurisy, which is a lung membrane that becomes inflamed, chest pains, hard to breathe, viral, pneumonia, basically. Um, there was one thing I read that they'd all gotten kind of sick in, in Australia, 
and this just kind of struck stuck with Simon and, and you didn't quite shake it uh, probably not being the healthiest cat at this point too so um, it, it took its toll by this point so he had to take a couple dates off near the end of the wish tour Robert Suave of the Associates and Shelly and Orphan who was the wish opening act uh, would fill in from November 2nd to November 21st into Scotland but being the stallion that Simon Gallup is, he would return triumphantly November 23rd in Manchester to finish out the race, wrapping it up in Dublin. You know, if I had anything inflamed, I think I'd be out for a year at least. So, uh, just further proof what a golden god this man is. 1993. Whew, exhausted, banged up, the cure would actually manage to play one show this year, and uh, that would be at the Great Expectations Festival or show in Finsbury Park, London, July 13th. Pearl had already left the band at this point. Boris wasn't far behind. The show opened with Shiver and Shake, just as an obvious fuck you to lull because all the legal action was starting to go down against the band. So they were in a rough spot, but they did manage this. I've heard a bootleg of the show. It actually sounds great. But um, yeah, the wheels are wobbling on this one here. So I'm sure Simon was still not in tip-top shape by this point. But the rest is doing good. That's the only, only show they're playing in 93. Give them time to rest up. Uh, let's take a little bit more off. 94, no shows for the first time since 1988. And only the second time in the band's history ever. 1995. Ugh, what a shitty year that was. Um, not for the cure, though. They, they would have 12 shows that they called the Team Tour, mostly festivals throughout Europe um, prior to the release of Wild Mood Swings, which would later come out May 6th of the next year. So we're already... Getting a little taste of Wild Mood Swing songs about a year in advance. So June 6, 95, they play Want, Jupiter Crash, Mint Car, making their live debuts in Athens, Greece. With a new lineup, Robert, Simon, Perry, Rogers back, and Jason Cooper. New guy on drums. And they return to Glastonbury Festival June 25th. And it goes much smoother. And they play a final show in Spain on July 18th. 1996 rolls around. The band's been working hard on this album. While Mood Swings, they'll play 112 shows or appearances. Um, a lot more appearances for Wild Mood Swings. In fact, um, they would kick off the tour with some dates in Rio de Janeiro. And they'd play a ton of promo shows before the album came out, including lots of TV appearances. Jules Holland, Top of the Pops, TGI Friday, even SNL in the U.S. bibbity bobbity And uh, as well as more scattered dates across Europe before the Swing Tour would officially start. And the North American League would kick it all off, this time in Worcester, Massachusetts, July 2nd. The tour would be just as ambitious as the Wish and Disintegration tours with 48 shows, but it was very clear from the get-go that a lot had changed in the last four years. Not only within the Cure's lineup, but in the audience response. Many of the shows would have a less than desirable turnout, 
but the band still played 100% and delivered amazing shows throughout this tour. Anyone that witnessed those would know that there's no denying the great times that we all had on the swing tour, and those sets were amazing. While still wild mood swings heavy, more and more diversity crept in with the song selections, perhaps the true beginning of the anything was possible expectation that we put on the care to this day, because you would just get some rando ass songs thrown in there that were amazing. The tour would eventually wind down in mid-September with two finale dates at Radio City Music Hall and a performance on the Conan O'Brien show before trying their luck with the tour in Europe. October through December would be the European leg. They would play all the usual countries and wrap up at the NEC Arena in Birmingham, England. 1997 found only 20 shows for the band, mostly radio festival shows in the U.S. to promote Galore. Um, I actually saw them on, on this at the Patriot Center, HFS Nutcracker Festival. That was the one where Reeves actually came out and played like the last four or five songs with them. Um, I only knew him as the dude that played on Wrong Number at that point. But it was cool getting a little sneak peek at Reeves back in 1997. And uh, it was an amazing set. Although a little short because it was a festival set, but I, I still had a blast. My best seats to date at that point. Um, so yeah, just a little radio festivals tour in 97 leading into 98 which was similar with uh, 14 shows, mostly festivals again, this time across Europe, though, including the infamous drunkiest of drunk Robert shows in Lyon and at the Bazaar Festival in Germany, which <laughs> was truly bizarre. While still impressive that he could keep it together as well as he did, this may be the unofficial lowest of low points for the band. I think these two shows in particular are just a fucking mess, but... Fear not, they will rebound stronger than ever. I do recommend finding bootlegs of those. I want to do an episode on those in some form or another and try to be as tactful as possible, just admiring that they could still play a three-hour show when he's that trashed. Um, they just needed a break, you know? He sometimes he's got to cut loose. Uh, lie, lie low for a little bit, and that's exactly what they did in 1999. Um was very quiet year for The Cure. Aside from recording Blood Flowers or starting the process of recording Blood Flowers, um, only one live show was played, and that was on October 19th, and they played the VH1 Hard Rock Live Concert Series. I remember taping that on my old VHS, you guys. Yeah, I saw, uh, we saw, we all saw it. <laughs> I saw it. Uh, the live debut of Out of This World and Last Day of Summer and Blood Flowers. Cool shit. Um, it probably didn't come out. I feel like it didn't air until after Blood Flowers, but this was recorded then. So might be wrong on that. So, but because I feel like I already had known those songs by the time I watched it. But they said that's the live debut. So who knows? So then Y2K happened. Whew. I don't think any of us have really fully recovered from when that happened. And the, the Y2K scare and all. Um, man. I just sometimes... Sometimes... Uh, anyway. Uh, so yeah, The Cure did survive. They've entered a new decade as a band. Onwards, right? So 2000 would show 71 shows this year. 
the Dream Tour for Blood Flowers starts in February with some scattered UK dates, then scattered US dates around the Blood Flowers release date. And then they would quickly bounce back to Europe for more official start of the tour on March 27th. And they'd play in Spain and France and Germany, wrapping back around in early May in Italy. Then it was quickly back to the US in late May, starting in Atlanta this time, and crossing the underbelly of of the US through to the white west coast there, passing through the north and back around the east coast, and a finale at Jones Beach Theater back up in New York on June 20th. The set list on the Dream Tour were some of the best for diehard fans and any kind of Cure fan, I would think. Uh, Darker in nature to match the mood of Blood Flowers. Um, They really would just paint a lovely landscape with blocks of faith for the encore and pornography songs. other lesser played moody songs like Snake Pit would even get played and thrown in there. Be casually sprinkled in. You never knew when. It was a much needed rebound after the swing tour. Most of the shows sold out again and the fans flocked into the venues to embrace this finale vibe that everyone was feeling for the Dream Tour. That was once again in the air and uh, luckily would just prove to be another close call. See totally felt like it was the end but it wasn't oddly enough 2000 would end with a string of seven dates in australia and new zealand no pre-christmas homecoming gig in england or anything they would wrap it up in australia 2001 only nine shows and most were the appearances on tv or radio events other festivals to promote the greatest hits album 2002 20 shows, so not that many in 2002 either. 20 shows or appearances, most summer festivals. I think they're even calling them the Summer Festivals Tour through Europe and concluding with the trilogy shows in Berlin. See episode just recently where we talked about that. Um, Most of the festival set lists were a bit random while still leaning darker from the Bloodflower vibes. Um... One festival in Germany on July 14th. The first three songs were Out of This World, Want, and then Open. That would be cool if they just continued that on and did the whole set as opening tracks. (laughs) Uh, But it would end weird, too. They would end with Faith Healer and Alex Harvey cover and Don't Believe a Word, a Thin Lizzy cover. Must have just had a weird night uh 2003 they'd only have two shows a k-rock festival and a random london gig 2004 ahead of the self-titled released in june they would play two u.s festivals oddly i was at both of those i went to coachella may 2nd and the hf festival in dc on may 22nd i didn't even realize those were probably back-to-back cure shows technically even though there's a pretty big gap in between them Um, They would zip back home and do a hefty batch of European festivals, though. Shortly after that, it would be called the Euro Festival Summer of 2004 Tour Dates. Um, (laughs) That's a mouthful. June 19th, they would start in Italy and then continue on through July 17th in Portugal. Then they would do the Curiosa Tour. The Cure would get creative on this next run 
and do dates all through the U.S. that they would create their own traveling festival and hand-picked bands would open up for The Cure, uh, including Mogwai, Interpool, The Rapture. See episode 179 for more details on this one. But it kicked off on July 24th in Florida and wrapped up 22 dates later, August 29th in Sacramento, California. Then they would play four epic shows in Mexico and do the MTV icon thing and finish the year with mostly TV appearances throughout Europe. 2005 was another non-album festival year. Only noticeable wrinkle in the, was the change in the lineup. Perry and Roger were out in 2005 and Porl comes back for the Nine Festival Tour because guess how many shows there were? Nine. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> 2006, they had only one show, but it was an epic one. April Fool's, April 1st, <laughs> Royal Albert Hall, Teenage Cancer Trust, 38 song set list, rarities including The Blood, The Kiss, Signal to Noise, Drowning Man, Baby Scream, Shiver and Shake, Fire and Cairo, Grinding Halt, just a solid fucking set list all the way through. Would have been a great one. The Four Tour would come up next, and that was so long that it would stretch two years, 2007 and 2008. This is the tour that was pre and during 413 Dream with Robert, Simon, Pearl, and Jason. Hence the Four. Get it? Starting on July 27th in Japan this time, where they played the Fuji Rock Festival. Then they'd hit up Hong Kong for the first time ever, I believe, and Singapore, before more familiar territory in Australia and New Zealand. This time, 11 dates combined between the two. Um, Next, it was off to the U.S. again for what was supposed to be a long string of dates. But in a super rare occurrence, the band actually canceled these dates, citing that they needed to finish the new album which at the time was still supposed to be a double album. So uh, for some reason, it looks like they did play one date, though. The Shoreline date in Mountain View, California on October 6th. It was a super diverse 36-song set packed full of fan favorites and singles. Very similar to that awesome 2016 Cancer Trust show, actually. But also saw the debut of The Only One, which was originally called Please Project. After their one show, they would resume not playing the other shows that were originally scheduled and uh, head back home and eventually pick up dates again October 20th uh, well, like three shows or so in Mexico City, wrapping up the year 2007. 2008 would be a bit more as business, business as usual for The Cure, with 56 shows and appearances, starting with the European leg in February, hitting all their favorite spots with the finale in Wembley on March 20th. Still no sign of the album, though. Sound familiar? And uh, only a few tracks being sprinkled into the sets. Only one, Freak Show, Perfect Boy, and A Boy I Never Knew, which unless I'm missing something was a carryover 
an unreleased song from self-titled sessions, right? But maybe they had another crack at it in the 413, and it still didn't make the cut. Which is a bummer, because that song rules. Um, yeah, after about a month off, they would come back to the U.S., though, and make up those canceled dates. Leading off at my old university at the Patriot Center on May 9th. But I sadly wasn't there because I just moved to Asheville, North Carolina the year before. So I missed it. But I would get a chance to see them again after they looped all around the West Coast and back under again. And finally landed in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 16th. Definitely one of the best Cure shows I've ever seen. uh, Despite it not having any keyboards. The set list was amazing. I got like Letter to Elise, How Beautiful You Are, uh, 100 Years, Faith, Encore of Holy Hour, Other Voices, Drowning Man, and Faith. 35 songs total, and we had great seats too. There's a good amount of footage actually for this show on YouTube. They were professionally filming it for like an HD TV live show or something. Um, just remember thinking how cool it was seeing the big sweeping boom cameras going over our heads. I still haven't been able to like spot myself in the crowd or anything, but it's a nice way to preserve the memory for sure. Um, they had played three more US dates after me seeing them in Charlotte, wrapping up in New York on June 21st. They would finish 2008 the year off with actually releasing the fucking album in October and playing a few scattered appearances here in the u.s on tv and the k-rock xmas festival 2009 was another quiet year only four shows one being the shockwaves nme awards where they received the godlike genius award and a random vegas show prior to returning to coachella on april 19th this was the one where they played past the curfew and they fucking Pulled the plug on them um, at the start of Boys Don't Cry, of all songs. Shame, shame. But our boys kept playing anyway and made it through that. And then uh, half of jumping someone else's train before they cut all the power completely. Um, They haven't played Coachella ever since, so I hope they were offended and pissed off too. Uh, This is really unacceptable behavior, Coachella. Um, this would also be the last show that Pearl plays with The Cure, unfortunately. So that's a bit of a shame that Pearl's last show after the return ended on such a fizzle. Um, but I guess that's how shit goes in the real world. And who knows, you know, maybe maybe Pearl will come back at some point for another, another round. But not looking too likely. Uh, 2010 would be another completely concert-free year. Perhaps... Robert needed that time to calculate his next move and lineup adjustment, but they would rebound even stronger if that was even humanly possible. 2011, the Reflection Tour. For full details on this one, you can listen to our fairly recent episode, number 215, entirely on the Reflections Tour. But the super quick version is Lowell may have suggested it to Robert, he said, hey, Faith is having a 30th year anniversary coming up. Robert responded with, hey, yeah, that is a good idea. We should play all three albums in their entirety, and you should join us on percussion or something, and extra keys or something. Originally planned to just be two nights in Australia as the headliner of the Vivid Festival, 
Roger O'Donnell would also be returning to the band and they would play an encore of all the B-sides along with the singles too and then keep going with even more singles. <laughs> the shows were 100% satisfaction guaranteed success. So much so that they said, you know, we should do this a little bit more. So they scheduled a few more runs of this show in November. They performed it again in London at the Royal Albert Hall and three nights in Hollywood and three nights in New York. With even more songs added to the finale in New York, making it a 48 song set. 2012. Time to hit the summer festivals. Summer Cure Tour kicks off 2012. Pretty cut and dry run of European summer festivals running from May 26th at Pink Pop in the Netherlands to September 1st at the Electric Picnic Festival in Ireland. They also play Russia for the first time somewhere in all this. The set list would stay roughly consistent, but still dropping some rare nuggets in there for the fans, like banana fish bones and dressing up, just one kiss. Most notably, though, this tour would be the first appearance of Reeves on guitar. Reeves had met Robert at the Bowie B-Day Bash years earlier and recorded Wrong Number and the Orgasmo song together. Um, I don't recall if there was any official announcement at that point that he would be sticking around. I felt like that came a little later, uh, but it became pretty apparent that he was confirmed as an official member and uh, before too long and remains to this day. Hard to believe that he'll have been in the band 11 years this year. If only we had an album with him playing on it. How cool would that be? 2013. Lat M 2013 tour. Yes, the Cure would return to traveling Latin America April 4th in Rio. Eight massive shows in Paraguay and Argentina, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and then up through Mexico City on Robert's 54th birthday. This would prove to be the longest Cure show to date. Four hours and 16 minutes. 50 songs were played. There was an earthquake at the start of the show just to make it even more epic. Robert would even play three imaginary boys in Fire and Cairo solo acoustic near the end of Encore 4. We always talk about time travel shows. This one may be the one you want to set your dials for, to be honest. The band would take a quick rest before they'd hit up some more goddamn festivals, and they would call that the Great Circle Tour. And this time they would hit up some exotic locations like South Korea, Japan, Hawaii, Canada, Illinois, Austin. Well, um, yeah, started out a little more exotic, but still cool spots. They play a few more dates even in Texas after this, ending the year at the Voodoo Music Experience in New Orleans. This show was significant because this would be the mark of the live debut of everyone's favorite soundtrack tune, Burn. Night, call, 2014. 2014 is called the 2014 Tour. Only nine shows played, and there would be two more teen cancer shows in March, five U.S. festivals, including Riot Fest, and ending the year with three epic shows at the Apollo in London, where they would play the closest thing to a top anniversary show, 
that we'll probably ever see. I believe every song from the top was played in this 40 song set list, just not in order. I saw a few other rando rare boys in there too, like Man Inside My Mouth, Like Cockatoos, and even fucking Hey You got played at that show. 2015, they didn't play jack shit, but that's the year we started the podcast. News was slow, so I figured, hey, it'd be a good time to rehash some good old memories. Nothing new's gonna happen anytime soon. Until 2016 rolled around, and the 2016 tour was was huge. 20, uh, let's see, 67 shows were announced all over the damn planet, the most in decades. Opening on May 10th in New Orleans, which oddly enough is the exact same city and the exact same date, shows of a lost tour will be starting this year. May 10th, New Orleans. It would wind all around the U.S. and Canada, finally passing through Charlotte, North Carolina, and Atlanta. And that's where I would once again get to witness their brilliance. And it would conclude in Hawaii on July 17th. Then they'd hit New Zealand, Australia, before starting it all over again as they rocked their way through Europe and Eastern Europe. And, of course, three-night finale at Wembley Arena. This tour, this tour really blew even us diehard Cure fans away, I think. On some level, we were almost willing to start accepting the fact that maybe... They would start winding down and slowing down and uh, wouldn't sound as good maybe as in the past. Maybe the shows would start to drag a little bit more. But no, no, no. Robert really just came out and summoned some kind of demon power during his silent 2015 to preserve his immaculate vocals. And the band just fucking slayed it all through 2016 and I think just really reignited a fire in this band. And... um, yeah, not to mention taking unpredictable gems conveniently dropped throughout the set list to an extreme. Songs like fucking Exploding Boy we finally got in there. Just randomly thrown into a set list. Too late. This Twilight Garden and Burn on a regular basis. It was magical. Everybody didn't know what to expect from night to night. Probably the most random, awesome set list of any tour. We're eating that shit up and vowing to see as many shows as possible next time around. 2017, another completely concertless year though, but it was a well-deserved quiet one for the band. 2018, only had two shows, but they were historical ones. Literally, Robert was asked to curate the 2018 Meltdown Festival. Further proving that he's the coolest old guy ever. He found impressive festival lineups of younger bands and veteran bands. And this Cure would also play under the name Curation, rather, for the finale night. They would do uh, a set of songs from here to there and there to here, meaning that one song from each album all the way from past to present and then from present back in their back catalog. The other show that they would play in 2018 would be the celebration of their 40th year of music anniversary, a live show in Hyde Park and played over to 60,000 people in one of the hottest nights in British history, or at least that summer's history. I don't know. I'm not an expert on British heat. Sorry. Um, 
It was a perfectly representative set list, though, that showcased all the Cure's hits, deep cuts, fan favorites from over two hours of bliss that we could ask for. It was all captured, too, by none other than Tim Pope, who put it out um, on, a, on a concert film. Theatrical fucking release. I went and saw it in the theater like many of you guys and uh, loved every second of it. It would be released on DVD and CD along with the Curation Meltdown Festival uh, in that box set. It would come out in 2019, the following year. Speaking of 2019, that would be another year of festivals. Who's ready for more festivals? We all remember this run pretty freshly still, um, so I won't dwell on it too long. But uh, after being inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame earlier in 2019, so we can count that performance too, there was it four or five songs that we saw. Everyone was pumped to see The Cure back in action live. Um, even if you don't want to go to a fucking festival, we all... We're like, well, we have to go to at least one festival. But wait, before they actually play the festival, let's do some more historic shit. They play in Africa for the very first time ever. March 15th in Johannesburg and March 18th in Cape Town. Then they're like, well, let's keep doing more historic shit. They announce a 30th anniversary of disintegration in the Sydney Opera House in Australia. Like Once again, headlining the Vivid Festival. They play five nights starting May 24th and play the full album, plus all the B-sides and even the outtakes, Pirate Ships, Esten, No Heart, all that shit, completely off the charts, cure heaven. Thankfully, the fifth night was live streamed for all us suckers that couldn't get out there. And uh, we woke up super early, watched that from our couches. And uh, sadly, this time, they didn't decide to continue doing the shows in London and the U.S. So that was it. We missed it. Instead, they'd play a shit ton of festivals throughout the world. Yay. (laughs) June 8th, they'd start out in Dublin and battle their way through Europe once again, playing all the best festivals. Plus a few more spots like Romania, Serbia, Croatia, and once again... They would play the Fuji Rock Festival in Japan, where this time the fire was stoked by uh, Simon not coming out. And rather, Eden, his son, was playing bass. It was live streamed too. I woke up early that day and saw Eden come out. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? But, uh, you know, my heart was in my throat the whole time, nervous for this guy, but he fucking nailed it and surely made Dad and Uncle Bob super proud because that was an amazing set. And a fun show to watch. It wrapped up in Paris on August 23rd before picking right back up with a couple U.S. festivals. August 31st at the Pasadena Daydream Festival that they had put together themselves with the Pixies, Deftones, and Mogwai. And of course Twilight Sad was there. Just to name a few. Um, And then they would wrap up with two nights at Austin City Limits and Mexico City in between those two nights. I was lucky enough to attend the final show October 12th, night two of Austin City Limits. See my episode of that. 120, I believe it was. Episode 120. It was an amazing night. Again, I was shocked in person this time when Simon did not come out on stage. And instead, his son Eden came out in his father's place but this time I was very confident that he'd pull it off and of course he did flawless oddly most of the set list on this tour was very similar from night to night 
but there was no arguing that it wasn't a wonderfully crafted set and guaranteed to please any fan there. Just a bit odd from the Cure's perspective. Just One Kiss, I think, is the heavy rotation highlight for most of us that was in that set. So hopefully that'll return. The Cure would get a free pass for no shows in 2020 and 2021 as there was this fucking pandemic going on or some weird shit. Um, This would also prove to be the longest stretch of no Cure shows in the band's history ever. Never back-to-back years of no shows. Fucking thanks, COVID. Another awesome, awesome time. Thank you. Um, So yeah, then when the tour got announced... Last year, Euro 2022 tour. Goddamn, were we all excited. And slightly annoyed that the new album wasn't out. But still, fuck it. We got a tour. And we got the cure back. We're going to soak up every moment of this. And they were even sharing some of the new songs on this tour. 46 shows played all throughout Europe. Stretching all around. 50 different tunes would be played through all these shows. Including five new songs alone. I can never say goodbye. Nothing is forever. End song and a fragile thing. <laughs> fragile thing. I have to say fragile like them, I guess. The band sounded strong as ever. The two years didn't make a fucking bit of difference. Uh, many of you guys attended and confirmed after years and years of seeing this band and your fandom that these were, in fact, possibly the best live shows you've ever seen from the band. Ever. We also had a wonderful surprise right from the start when our old buddy Perry came back out on stage opening night, October 6th in Latvia and uh, sticks with him. He's back in the band making them a six piece again. The first time since Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Robert had one minor scare of a sore throat near the end of the tour but rebounded like a champ instantly. For the big finale in Wembley Arena, ending the tour on December 13th, their most recent show to date. We made it, guys. Every fucking tour we just rambled through. (laughs) And in less than one month from now, we will get even more Cure live shows. The U.S. leg of the Shows of a Lost World Tour will be added to this list. Like you, I have many hopes and predictions for these shows, but ultimately, just can't fucking wait to see them again. We're hoping to have Andy, the Cure fan. You know him. He's going to be on our next episode coming up, and it's going to be not only our hopes and predictions for the tour, but we're also going to talk about his plans for meetups that he's scheduling with other Cure fans on the West Coast. It's going to be an awesome time. We're all going to get pumped for this tour, and... Talk about what we think might happen and what we think definitely will happen and what could happen. Who knows? So be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening uh, on your podcast devices and the Instagram and the Facebook social medias. I do want to once again say that I got most of my uh, scoop from this, however accurate, from setlist.fm. And Christian Gerard's wonderful book, Cure FAQ. You can order it on Amazon or just about anywhere you order books. So look it up, buy it, have it on your shelf. A giant thank you to you guys for listening and bearing with me here as I rambled through 45 years of tour dates. So I hope you got a little something out of this. And if nothing else, it got you pumped for the upcoming shows. 
Now go put your favorite live album on, crank it up, drink a bottle of wine, think you're back there in a little time travel the old-fashioned way. And uh, we'll catch you next time here on the Holy Hour. We'll have more people, more voices, and uh, see you there. Talk hard.